Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen, powered by ELEC 825, as I talk over the Michigan fight song because Jeff celebrates a win over Rutgers, which I'd like to point out years ago, Jeff never would have even celebrated a win over Rutgers because it wouldn't have ever been in doubt. Separate no. from that, we're thrilled to join you on WWDB 860 AM and the 97.5 Network, ready to help you move into the weekend talking about all the news in the world of sports. Jeff, there was no Thursday night football, so you can't complain about that because of COVID, but I am sure you will complain about that shortly. But you can tell me if you saw the annual Thanksgiving Day games. Did you watch? They were horrible. They were awful. Why, asked, do, the, why do the Lions and Cowboys still get a game? I don't get it. Why don't they just switch it? I don't understand. What, what, is, what is the tradition with that, other than they call it a tradition, that we need to watch the Lions every year? I don't know. I don't find it a good tradition. The Lions I, have never been to the Super Bowl. I was asking you when was the last time they were in the playoffs? I mean, why do we have to watch that? I was asking you before we went on the show how Matt Patricia still has a job, and all of a sudden you started going off about a pencil. So <laughs> clearly you're fired up for today. And I well, well, no, if you can explain to me why in the world he has a pencil in his ear. I would like to know when is the last time any coach ever used a pencil? What is he using it for? Don't they have bigger problems? <laughs> well, apparently, if he can't get past the fact that there's better technology than pencil, I wouldn't like to see what's going on in his meetings. All right, so Detroit got waxed yesterday. I think it's the first. Is he time. like writing on cave walls with it? I mean, what 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 does he do while everybody else is looking at film? I mean, didn't he learn anything from Phil Parcells, who was like sending people over to videotape people? I mean, oh. instead he's sitting there drawing on walls with pencils. Both winning teams put up 41 <laughs> points yesterday. Uh, Dallas lost. It was a good story to see Alex Smith. I can't root for the Washington football team, but I can feel good for Alex Smith uh, getting that coming full circle from when he had that infection. Wait, 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 wait. Does Washington actually get to be called a winning team? Does anybody in the NFC get to be called a winning team at any point during this season? No, but at least I don't have to hear how the Eagles are in first place in the NFC East anymore, at least for a couple days, unless they pull up an upset, which we'll get to. In yeah, a they're, not gonna be, they're not going to be in first place. You wanted to talk about the lack of Thursday night football and why we didn't have it. Now, it was supposed to be Baltimore-Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. The Steelers were not happy, if you were looking on Twitter, that that game was canceled. And first it was moved to Postponed. Sunday. Then it was postponed to Tuesday, which means their Thursday night game has to be moved to the following Monday with the Cowboys, and you're not pleased. So, so far we know that Lamar Jackson, yeah. J.K. Dobbins, right. other players. Mark Ingram. Mark Ingram have tested mm -hmm. positive for COVID. Looks like Robert Griffin III will be the quarterback should they ever actually play a game here. <laughs> He's uh, the NFL. And you are not satisfied with this process or result. So the floor is yours, Jeff. So I don't understand why it's being moved at this point. If they have enough players, assuming they have enough players, the game should not have been moved so that they can sit there and get players back. At this point, if there were enough players to play on Thursday night, the Steelers prepared for the game, the Steelers should have been able to play because it also hurts the Steelers. Now there are some people that are going to argue it doesn't hurt the Steelers because now they get basically a bye week. Well, it turns out they don't. In fact, I think the Steelers sent home their players today and said, we're not going to practice because we don't think there's going to be a game. And then all of a sudden, it goes from Sunday to Tuesday. Now we have Tuesday night football? Uh, and, and at that point, if I'm the Steelers and Lamar Jackson shows up on the field, I, now I can't imagine if he's tested positive, he shouldn't be back 
whether it's four days later or six days later or seven days later, he shouldn't be back. But if Lamar Jackson all of a sudden coincidentally tests negative and J.K. Tobbins and Mark Ingram test negative, if I'm the Steelers, I'm furious at this. I'm, I'm surprised by, I guess the postponements are more for concern of spread to other players and exposure to the other team. Okay, well, if the stories that, that I've seen have any truth to them, then you were more concerned than the NFL was. Because well, what, so, so what, talk about some of those things that have now come out that apparently went on that people knew about and still allowed to go on. Well, they, they appear to think that patient zero in this situation was the, what, the strength and conditioning coach for the yeah, Ravens. Who didn't wear a mask regularly and, um, and... And apparently didn't report symptoms. Yes. And so the Ravens have reported him in the hopes that they don't get bigger penalties because now there are penalties which included loss of draft picks. Do you think that's legit or are they just tossing dude under the bus? <laughs> I don't know if it's legit or not, but they clearly are tossing him under the bus. I mean, they obviously think that the draft pick's more important than their strength and conditioning coach. But if the strength, if they knew of something over the weekend, which I don't know if it's true, I'm not in the Ravens locker room, but what they're saying is, is that there's the possibility that they knew all of this stuff and still, I guess they did some testing and said, okay, now you can go practice on Monday and Tuesday. The NFL said, okay, so that they could get the game in Thursday. If that's the case, that was incredibly irresponsible in order to rush a game in that they didn't get in anyway and created a bigger problem. See, this is, this is what people don't understand about this whole situation is if you don't do the protocols, this is not a minor deal. This is how it spreads. And if, if how did the NFL not learn from Major League Baseball? What happened with the Cardinals this year? This is, this is the same situation now, is that if you don't stop this when you have a chance to stop it, it is going to spread. And it's going to take days for people to figure that out. I don't understand why they didn't figure this out and say, we need to take precautions. If Lamar Alexander, I mean, Lamar Jackson isn't playing, oh, well, then he's not playing. Sorry. Well, he's not playing. Uh, the Ravens just put Lamar... Patrick Ricard, Justin Matabuke, and Morgan Cox all on COVID reserve. So they're all out for Tuesday if they play. How long are they out for if they're put on the reserve list? Through Tuesday, at least. I know they won't be in Tuesday's game. Okay. So, all right. Um, so, so now you got RG3. You're going to get to see RG3 under center mm -hmm. there. And I'm sure that will drive you to watch Tuesday night football because you're always so interested in Thursday night football. I'll, I'll tell you, though, that this forget the the ravens i mean this this rivalry though has become one of the rivals is there a bigger rivalry in the nfl right now than the ravens and the steelers well the um kansas city chiefs didn't seem too thrilled that the raiders drove around their stadium doing a victory lap in their butt yeah but, what, no, but when it comes so. from from game to game year to year for the last decade or so is there a bigger rivalry in the nfl than the ravens and steelers they just beat each other up every time they play each other they're good games the steelers mike tomlin i don't care what happens the rest of the season mike tomlin is the coach of the year he's a genius he, he has done a great job with this. And I remember Anthony Lynn, who's the Chargers coach, saying at the beginning of the year, something to the effect that maybe the team that's going to win this year is going to be the team that is the most disciplined in dealing with COVID. And the Steelers appear to be an incredibly disciplined team when it comes to this. And they're getting through this, and they're able to adjust to all of the stuff that's going on with them. 
I don't think this is the first time. Didn't the Steelers have another issue with another team earlier this year? Well, that's the whole reason that they are so angered is they lost their bye week when the Titans had their outbreak. Right. They so, already so- had to play musical schedules. Their bye week was flipped around, and they basically lost the bye week now because of how this, you know, Tomlin was basically going to give the players off from Thursday through the weekend and now they lost that because the game might have been played on Sunday, but now the game's going to be played on Tuesday. So you, that's why they did not bring them into the facility today because they're not getting that time to rest with their bodies. The Steelers have been significantly impacted by other people's malfeasance when it comes to how they have handled COVID within their own teams. So let me ask you a question. All right, there, there was something questions. floating around of the possibility that the Ravens may have to forfeit this game as opposed to extending the season. If they had forfeited the game and the Steelers went on to be undefeated in the regular season, would you have said that an asterisk would have had to been next to them? The dreaded asterisk. I wouldn't, but the Dolphins would have. <laughs> how? See, okay, so how did the Dolphins do that? We're getting ahead of ourselves, but how the Dolphins did that? Because how many games did the Dolphins win? Celebrate 14. Every year when a team loses, don't they celebrate and... Yes. Well, the ones that are still around. So for, they were 14-0 in the regular season. If the Steelers would have run the table, including having a forfeit, they would have won 15 of the 16 games. Look, if you're going to put an asterisk on the season, you're going to do it because it's a COVID season, not because there's a game postponed or canceled. The whole season itself is... Either you, it's a season that's played and you count it, or it's not. I mean, I, I'm not big on asterisks. You, you, people try and notate history and rewrite history to, to fit their narrative. And look, the games are played. People are going to win and lose. If, if teams weren't responsible enough that they had to forfeit a game, I'm not going to hold that against the Steelers. Anyway, okay. It's not their fault. But they're not the only team right now. I mean, you look, the Browns closed their facilities for another positive test. You know, I mean, we'll get to college in a little bit, but I mean, you got problems all over the place in college right now. Your your son was out at Colorado before he came back, and he was saying they basically knew the game was going to be canceled with USC. Yeah, they see, they seem to at least the students seem to know that the USC Colorado game was going to get canceled, and somebody must have known because how in the world did Colorado reschedule? It's Friday. They have a game tomorrow, even though the game was canceled with San Diego State, and San Diego State had their game canceled because there were issues with their opponent, Fresno State. So something had to be in the work for days. It's not like they could have picked up the phone last night and said, hey, come on out from San Diego to Boulder. Um, the NFC East is still a dumpster fire, Jeff. Uh, what did you think of Washington and Dallas yesterday? It was awful. That game was horrible. And what has happened to Ezekiel Elliott? Can't hold on to the ball. How it- is... It, it, you know, I think it's that tattoo that says "Feed me" on his stomach. Apparently, it, it, it's regurgitating the football because he can't seem to hold on to it. We don't get to do this that much. We've had a ton of interviews lately where we haven't gotten to talk. I want to talk a little bit about the games. We're going to have our guest Bill Madden on talk about his book about Tom Seaver in about five minutes. Jeff, I know that's a, a big one for you as a childhood kid growing up. Yeah. Uh, any games stick out? We got Dolphins, Jets for the Stink Bowl. Uh, it looks like Tua may come back well, eventually. May or may not. Now, I mean, the latest I heard is that it doesn't look like he will. So it's will questionable. Wait, wait. Himself or let's say Tua play? is playing. That game is still unwatchable. Yeah. It, there's still Jets on one side of the ball at all times. And as Frank Gore said, this is not how he wanted to go out. 
So I will ask the same question <laughs> I asked at the start of the show with the Detroit Lions. How does Adam Gase still have a job? Uh, well, no, I have a theory on this. The reason that Adam Gase has the job now is because they do want to lose. So they're saying, so look, we know you awesome. suck. So keep coaching. Do Keep doing the great job that you're doing so that we can get the number one pick. So, so That's he, why he's there. He's basically Ted Lasso for the TV show that you're into now. He's there to lose. No, but Ted Lasso did well. I mean, look, I don't want to give away the don't series. Don't ruin but, the series for me. You're just getting me into it now. Have you but started watching it? I have started watching it. It's incredible, stuff. isn't it? It's funny stuff. It's yeah, I mean, I mean, there are very few shows these days. Like it, it, it's, it's not like a typical HBO kind of everything's dirty and and stuff like that. There, ha it has its moments that way. But it is like there are very few positive shows on television. And that show, just like you watch it, and it, I don't know, I don't know if you remember Entourage, and if you watched Entourage. Oh, I love. I, I just smiled when I watched that show. It was, to, you know, like there was always like something good that happened at the end of the show. Ted Lasso is that show. And it, that show is that good. I'm so glad that they signed on for another season on that. Yeah, I'm starting to get into it. I, obviously, uh, with the week I've had, I haven't gotten too far along with it, but I definitely watched my first show, and I uh, I enjoyed it very much. The Cardinals are playing the Patriots. Uh, is Cam Newton going to end up being the quarterback or benched again? <laughs> I, think he'll, I think he'll start the game as quarterback. Whether he finishes the game as quarterback, it's a whole different story. Because I don't know how the Patriots are going to keep up. The Patriots' defense is not the Patriots' defense this year. So I don't know how they keep up with the Cardinals. Yeah, I don't know at all. You got the Panthers, who are basically the fighting Temple Owls. <laughs> you, know, you got P.J. Walker playing at quarterback with Matt Rule at coach. and Former XFL quarterback. And, and they've been playing well. They play the Vikings. Browns play the Jaguars, Titans, Colts. Any of those grab your attention? The Colts' defense no. has been pretty good they're, at times. They're, they're, uh, we'll see if they're able to, to control Derrick Henry, who busted away last week to win the game in overtime. Yeah, I mean, I think you just cited probably the the closest game if you're going to look at them: Tennessee Titans, Indianapolis Colts. The Bears Packers might be a good game. It would be nice if they could like provide some snow for that game, so you can get like the old fashioned Lambeau game at eight o'clock at night with just cold, and you see their breath coming out of their mouth. That would be a fun game to watch. You know who won't be playing on Sunday night? Who? Nick Foles. Mitch Why? Trubisky will be the starting quarterback. Apparently, he's still injured. I actually think the game of the week is Kansas City against the Buccaneers. Uh, that that's going to be a actually the the bet the biggest battle in that game is Bruce Arians versus Tom Brady. Those oh. those two appear not to be getting along. I mean, if you watch Bruce Arians' press conferences, are epic in the way that he is knocking Tom Brady left and right. What is Bruce Arians ever won? as a head coach that he could sit there and knock Tom Brady. He he literally said in practice he's hitting those throws. I don't understand why he's not hitting them in games. Then he's saying, well, you know, we'll only go as far as Tom Brady takes us. It's constantly talking about Tom Brady didn't do this and did do this and needs to do this more. Bruce Arians is running an offense that Tom Brady's not the guy should be running. Bruce Arians wants to throw it down the field all the time. Tom Brady has never been a super strong arm quarterback. He certainly isn't that at 43. I don't understand why they're not playing to his strengths. And Leonard Fournette, if he could catch a ball, it would be nice. It would be interesting. Can the Giants keep up in the NFC least? Of course they can. <laughs> if you think about it, the Giants might have played the best. During, if you look at their losses, their losses are very close losses. 
um, that doesn't win you anything. I'm not looking for a participation trophy, but it, it, it at least means they're playing well from week to week. I don't know if any of the other teams in the NFC East are playing well from week to week, except when they play each other. I mean, the only reason Washington looked good this week is because Dallas's defense is putrid. They and are, their offense is just as bad. They are historically bad. That's so, so here's a question, though, for the Cowboys. Um, does this not answer the question of who's more important, Ezekiel Elliott or Dak Prescott? Look, they're going to have uh, some serious issues because they paid Zeke and not Dak. And All right. Since, 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 since we've had 60-degree weather, why don't we move on to a little baseball talk and then we can get back to football later on. I'm always good with that. Go for it. Good. You want to bring on the guest? No, I'll bring him on. We've got Bill Madden joining us, author of Tom Seaver, A Terrific Life. Bill, thank you so much for giving us a few minutes today to talk about the book. How are you doing? Mike, I don't know if he can hear us on the other side of the glass. Why don't you work on that and let me know? Jeff, uh, Tom Seaver for you was a, a boyhood idol. So to get this on. Tom, yeah, I mean, Tom, Tom Seaver was, as a kid who grew up in North Jersey, Tom Seaver was the pitcher. I, I remember as a kid, you know, throwing with friends or throwing the ball against the side of the house and trying to to mimic that that delivery. I don't, I, to this day, I don't know how, if you ever saw Tom Seaver pitch, Tom Seaver dragged his his leg on the ground as he pitched to the point that his knee touched the ground. In fact, when the when Tom Seaver passed away, uh, the Mets all came out and had dirt on the knees as a tribute to him. And I, I just thought that was kind of an interesting kind of tribute to him. Bill Madden, are you there with us right now? Yes, I am. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, as we mentioned to our audience, we got Bill Madden, author of Tom Seaver, A Terrific Life. Jeff on our video stream is holding up the book, which I, I know he, he took copious notes on. Bill was inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame, recipient of the J.G. Taylor Spink Award. I'll let Jeff take away the first question on the interview because he's your Tom Seaver fan the most for us. So, so Tom, look, uh, um, I grew up as a as a Tom uh, Bill. I grew up as a Tom Seaver fan, and uh, your your book. When I heard that the book was coming out, I, I was so interested to read it. What for you, as a as a guy who's been covering New York sports as long as you have, what made you want to make Tom Seaver uh, a subject of one of your books? Well, he was one player that I had a personal relationship with, for one thing, uh, and. Um, Obviously, he was a fascinating character or person, uh, not just as a baseball player, but uh, as a guy who really had two separate lives. Uh, after he left baseball, he turned his back on baseball for the most part and entered into a whole new career as a winemaker out in California. And he wound up making not just wine, but award-winning wine. And that was the story of Tom Seaver. Everything he did, he did for perfection and he did for excellence and um and he was plus the fact that he was a friend and a good guy so i wanted to do this book and what happened was um i had a long-standing relationship and with him and um the editor former sports editor uh editor-in-chief i should say of the daily news a guy named martin dunn came to me about three years ago he had started his own production company uh, and actually, it was, it was five years ago. It was a 2015, and he said to me, I'd love to do a documentary on Seaver and your relationship with him. Would you be interested? you think he would be interested in doing that? So I told him I'd call him and see, and Seaver was uh, 
surprisingly and happily receptive to the idea. So we went out there in 2016 and 2017. We made two separate trips out to the vineyard in Calistoga and spent the better part of four days with him getting all these interviews and, and with him and his family and friends and everything else out there. And uh, we did the documentary. It came out in, in, uh, 19, in, in the fall of 2019 in conjunction with the 69 Mets 50th anniversary. And um, shortly thereafter, about five, about five months later in March of that year, um, the family put out the statement that he was suffering from dementia and um, he was dropping out of public life. And it was at that point, one of the people involved in the production said to me, Bill, you've got to write the book now. You're the only guy that can do this book. And I had been reluctant to do a book with him because of the fact that his memory was really slipping. Uh, in fact, the difference between him in 2016 and 2017 was dramatic. The second time we went out there, he couldn't even remember anything about his career, uh, which was very sad for me. But fortunately, Nancy, his wife, was tremendous the second time we went out there and kind of filling in the holes and also talking about their relationship through the years. So I was armed with all this, all this stuff that we've gotten from the documentary. When you do a documentary, the, you know, you spend hours and hours of interviews, but in, in the final analysis, only about 40 minutes of it gets on screen. So I had a ton of stuff that was left on the, t on the cutting room floor. Unfortunately, when you do a book, I was able to, grab it all up off the cutting room floor and get it into this book. So, you know, his story is one we talk a lot with sports and the lessons that people can learn from athletes. He, he's one that all kids can learn from. He didn't make his high school varsity team. He was beat out by Dick Selma, who was later a teammate of his on the Mets, and he was a, a slow developer. He signed up for the Marine Reserves. Can you talk about his path to baseball and how it wasn't as easy as some other stars of the game? No, it wasn't. He was uh, growing up in Little League and even into high school. He was, a, he was among the smallest guys on the team. He was a great competitor, though. That's what everybody said about him back then and all through his career, that he was the fiercest competitor you would ever come across. But the fact of the matter was he was small, and even though he had winning records in Little League and in high school, and he was probably the best pitcher on the team. He didn't have that overwhelming fastball because he wasn't he wasn't that big. And that was something that always bothered him because his family was he came from a family of athletes. His sisters were both fairly tall. His brother was over six feet. His father was a cha championship amateur golfer back in the 30s. It was a very competitive family, but he was the runt of the family, and he was very concerned because of the fact that that he, as fierce a competitor as he was, he wasn't tall enough or big enough to get a college scholarship. And he told his parents in his senior year, he says, if I can't get a scholarship to college, I'm not going there on your dime. I'm only going to go to college on my, on my own athletic ability. And if I can't get there that way, I'm going to have to figure out something else to do. So when he graduated from Fresno High, uh, no college scholarships, a couple of his teammates got them, but he didn't. So he had to figure out something else to do, and he decided that he was going to join the Marine Reserves. His brother had been a Marine, and this was his plan. Tom always had a plan. 
and his plan was to go into the Marines and see what happened after that. So he went into Marines at 99 Palms, California. He went down there for six-month basic training. He went into the Marines at 59160, and six months later he came out of the Marines at 61210. It was like a miracle. It was like miracle grow, <laughs> literally. Uh, and all of a sudden, now we have the Tom Seaver that everybody would remember uh, 30 years later because he was he was he not only was he big. He had grown, but he also went from, you know, a a below-average fastball to being able to throw in the mid-90s now. And uh, because of that, he, his plan extended to the fact that he wanted to go to Fresno City College, junior college, for one year just so that he could prove himself to the big-time colleges, mainly uh, USC. He wanted to go to Southern California to pitch for Rod Dato, the legendary Southern Cal coach who won a number of national championships. So that's what happened. He went to Fresno City College. Dato saw him over there. He pitched very well for them, extremely well. And Dato told him, I'm going to hold a scholarship for you, but before I give it to you, I want you to go to Alaska. And Seaver which, says which, to him, Alaska? Why do I want to go to Alaska? Which, it by the way, Bill, the data this, is the, this is the second time, believe it or not, that on this show, Alaska baseball has come up. Greg Dobbs was on our show a few months ago and talked about his experience in Alaska. Um, for people that don't know, there is an Alaska baseball league. What was it like for Tom Seaver to go to Alaska, and, and what were the challenges for him there? Well, it was, it was it's, it's called the Alaska Gold Panners. That was the team he went to, up to play for, and this is—they're almost like a semi-pro team because they—it was all—it was a college, summer wood bat baseball league, but it was the highest quality of competition. They played all the best uh, uh, leagues of that nature all over the country, uh, and they went to all the big tournaments and everything else. And Seaver was playing, and that's what Dato wanted. He wanted him to pitch against college players because he, you know, he'd just been the one year in junior college. And some of the best players, mostly from the West Coast, came at, played for the Gold Panthers. It was Rick Monday, Greg Nettles, Bill Lee, a ton of them. And so Seaver went up there as, as, as instructed by Dato, and he had a really good season up there. And that's when Dato said to him, okay, I saw what I wanted to see up there. Um, you got the scholarship. And uh, so he went to USC, and he went started at USC as like the third best pitcher on the staff, and by the end of the year he was there. He was the team ace. And eventually, you know, he makes it to the major leagues, and you tell a story of when Tom Seaver first faced Hank Aaron in Atlanta. Um, you know, it's amazing. Every time we talk to athletes, they remember the first time they either faced or met uh, their own childhood idols. Can you tell us a little bit about um, Tom Seaver's first facing Hank Aaron? Well, uh, he, Seaver grew up idolizing Hank Aaron. He once told me, he said, you know, it's funny. Here I am, a white guy from Southern California, a pitcher who idolized a black guy who was a hitter from the South. And he said, but it was just one of those things. I just loved the way Hank Aaron went about his game and uh, his professionalism and Everything about him, I just idolized it. So, uh, ironically, he originally was drafted and signed by the Atlanta Braves. But what happened was uh, he, had, he had pitched uh, a couple of games for Southern Cal 
which he thought were exhibition games, but it turned out they were actually part of the their actual schedule. And so as a result of that, somebody blew the whistle on the Braves and said that they had signed a pitch, uh, they had signed Seaver while he was still pitching for Southern Cal, and therefore the the signing was not, was declared null and void by the commissioner, and Seaver's name was thrown into a hat with two other teams that were the Phillies and the Indians who were willing to match the Braves' offer, and the Mets won the lottery, picked his name out of the lottery. And so he wound up with the Mets. But in the meantime, uh, his first year in the major leagues, he uh, circled on his calendar when the Mets would be playing the Braves because he couldn't wait to face Hank Aaron. And um, he went down. I think it's the game you're referring to. The first time up, he struck Aaron out, and he was giddy with joy. And he struck him out on a on a breaking ball uh on the outside corner and so he remembered that he said the next time Aaron came up he said he was he was going to try he would use the same pitch to get him out with because it worked and the only problem was Aaron remembered too and the next time he faced him Aaron hit a ball a mile over the right field fence and uh, that was that was that story so he goes through his career as a Met, obviously has all of his success, and then we get to one of the saddest moments of Jeff's youth fandom, the day the Mets traded Tom Seaver to the Reds. Uh, you talk in the book about the backstory of how that came about. Can you tell us about that and how Nolan Ryan and his wife played into that moment? Yeah, this was uh, in, the, in the summer of 1977. Uh, Seaver was in an acrimonious contract negotiation with Emmett chairman of the Mets. Now, there was two things going on. Free agency had come into play in 1976. And as a result of that, after the 76 season, a whole bunch of players became free agents and signed these huge contracts. Seaver was already in, already in the midst of a two-year contract with the Mets, a three-year contract with the Mets. But he saw what was going on, and he felt like, you know, he needed to – he thought that the Mets should probably – work something out with him so he would be paid commensurate to some of these other pitchers who were far inferior to him that were getting these ridiculous con not ridiculous but they were huge contracts well grant was un unwilling to renegotiate with him and at the same time siever was criticizing grant in the papers a lot for his failure to sign any of the free agents to, and to help the mets get better so all of this was going on and finally Grant solicited the help and assistance of Dick Young, who was the columnist for the Daily News, most powerful columnist in the country. And he was actually my boss and my mentor all those years ago. Anyway, so Young writes a series of columns, really critical of Seaver, calling him an ingrate and uh, selfish and a cancer on the team and everything else. And this is going on, and the, and the war between Grant and Grant and the Daily News against Seaver was wild that, that whole summer. Finally, Seaver goes over Grant's head to the owner of the team, Mrs. DeRolay. He She was the daughter of Joan Payson, the original owner. And he negotiated his own two-year contract. And it looked like everything was going to be settled until Young wrote one more column, which I wrote in the book, were the 33 words that effectively drove Tom Seaver out of town. And these are the 33 words, quote, Nolan Ryan is getting more now than Seaver. 
And that goals, Tom, because Nancy Seaver and Ruth Ryan are very friendly. And Tom Seaver has long treated Nolan Ryan like a little brother, end quote. Seaver was with the Mets in Atlanta at the time. This is the day of the trading deadline, June 15th. Somebody showed him that column, and he went ballistic. He jumped up from his chair. They were all sitting around the pool. He ran into his room. He called up. He got on the phone, and he called Joe McDonald, the general manager of the Mets up in New York, and he said, get me the hell out of here. I have had it. This is the last straw. He's brought my family into it. I will not tolerate this. Get me out of here. And so that night, the Mets accommodated him. They traded him to the Reds for four players. And that same night, they traded Dave Kingman, who was their leading home run hitter, who was also in a contract dispute with Grant. And they called that night the uh, the Midnight Massacre. They called it the worst day in Mets history. And that was the end of Tom Seaver as a Met, at least for the first time. So, so Bill, I don't think there's anybody on the planet that asked this question to who might be able to answer this better, which is you knew Young, the, the, the author of the article, and you know Tom Seaver. Do either of the, first with Tom, does Tom, did Tom ever express regret for reacting the way that he did and forcing his way out of New York? And second, did, did Young ever express regret for kind of being the mouthpiece for Donald Grant? The answer to both is no. <laughs> Seaver never forgave Young, and Young never uh, never apologized for his for his uh, taking Grant's side in this thing. In fact, uh, Young wrote one more column after the trade went down, and effectively he said in the column that um, something to the effect that this is probably this is a good thing for all sides, and uh, he says. Uh, Met fans will get over this. I think I think that's the way he put it. Well, obviously they never did. I never uh, did. Young was he <laughs> Young was being a little naive when he said that. And as far smart. as Seaver's concerned, he he despised Dick Young. He never got over it. And uh, I had a very uneasy day when I was inducted into the writers' wing of the Hall of Fame because Seaver and all the Hall of Famers were sitting behind me when I had to make my speech up there, and I could not make my speech without mentioning prominently Dick Young's role in my career. And so I kind of looked over my shoulder to see how Seaver was reacting to all this, and uh, he was kind of stone-faced about it. He never said anything to me about it because I think he understood, but he hated Dick Young to the end. And Young was actually booed at his own induction to the Hall of Fame, correct? He was, yeah. In fact, Young was inducted into the Hall of Fame the following year, after I think in 78, and... Um, he got up there, and I think I wrote in the book that he's probably the only writer who was ever booed <laughs> at the Hall of Fame at his own induction. And I remember the first few words of his speech, he says, thank you very much, Mets, Tom Seaver fans. The <laughs> name of the book is Tom Seaver, A Terrific Life. Uh, Bill Madden, where can we get the book, and where can we follow more of your work? Well, it's uh, the pub date was Thursday, so it's available now in all bookstores, and you can get it on Amazon. That's where a lot of people are going to get it. You can get it in Costco, and you can get Noble online. So uh, it, it's readily available. Well, we wish you the best of luck with it. Thank you so much for the time and the story and for letting Jeffrey live his childhood a little bit as we talk to you. You, uh, you have a great one. Best of luck with it all. 
Okay, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Jeff, did that scratch your Mets Tom Seaver itch for you there? It does. Uh, it. I mean, look, Tom Seaver was was. I we still, should not, right? He was. Look, as a kid, I just just as a kid, uh, just so I wanted to pitch like Tom Seaver. I wanted to be Tom Seaver, and 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 to prove to you that I, that I didn't get over it. I mean, I'm I became a Phillies fan when I moved to Philadelphia, but to prove that I never got over it, uh, I still remember that. The pitcher in that deal was Pat Zachary, <laughs> who, who who had played well as a rookie and was awful in his sophomore season. The Mets thought they were going to somehow turn him into the next Tom Seaver. And, and, and the second baseman in that trade was Doug Flynn. Oh. Uh, it, was, it, it wasn't just that they drove Tom Seaver, that, you know, that up until Derek Jeter, just so people realize this, Tom Seaver received the highest percentage of votes, I believe, in the history of the Hall of Fame. That's how good a pitch, how great a pitcher he was when he was on the mound. And if you if you just go back and look at the statistics for the number of complete games that he pitched. And here's just one more thing, because you love little fun facts. I love them. Despite all of his success with the Mets, he never threw a no-hitter with the Mets. In fact, if you remember, the first no-hitter the Mets ever threw was Johan Santana. So it it in their Mets it, history. It, it it's a it's amazing that they made it as far. They were so hapless. But Tom Seaver was looking to make that team better. I mean, he was on that '69 team. He was on the '73 team. By '76, they were just putrid, and they refused to sign anybody and didn't like the fact that Tom Seaver was coming out and saying, "I want this team to be better." Well, let's get back to some football. That was fun baseball talk. Did you hate me last Sunday, Jeff, as I was blowing up your phone watching the Eagles game? Well, no, because I was kind of loving you a little bit because I because Michigan came back and won the Rutgers game. So, so I so so I had a little bit in the jar of of of, of uh, leftover good feelings. <laughs> and I stayed up late to watch that game, and that was my night with the baby. So you, I, you know what's funny? I, I will I will readily admit I, I've had a hard time watching a lot of college football this year because of everything that's been going on with COVID and stuff like that. But um, and and I did I have not watched a, a lot of Michigan or anybody else. Uh, I turned it off at fourteen nothing. I, I said enough is enough with this. I know lots of people, lots of my brethren at, at at Michigan that all turned it off and said we had enough of this. And the only reason that I knew that Michigan was still in that game was because you weren't texting me. <laughs> that that is literally I, I literally got to the point of about eleven thirty or so and said. Michigan must have pulled something off because I haven't heard from Jason. I haven't gotten a little meme. I haven't gotten a, a Rutgers fight song. I had I didn't I didn't get I didn't get copied on an email to Mike saying, hey, you know, tee up the Rutgers fight song for next next week's show. I didn't get anything about, hey, bring Zubin on back next Friday so that we can talk Rutgers football. None of that. And I was like, that's not Jason. I mean, this is this is Mr. Blow Up My Phone for everything that you can think of, including Jason Peters moving from one side of the line to the other. So, Oh, that was, I was all <laughs> over that. Okay, so last week's game, uh, torrential rain. Like that, like, that, like that segue? Terrible weather. Yeah. <laughs> the perfect game to run the ball, right, Jeff? Yeah. You start off the game, first half, 14 rushes, 62 yards, had the bad fumble on the goal line, okay. Two rushes for four yards in the second half, Jeff. Okay. And, Miles Sanders. And, and I can tell you, so after watching yesterday's awful football games, 
Matt Patricia came out in the second half as bad as a co- as bad a coach as he is and how he decides to whatever he's using the pencil for. And they just ran the ball like a dozen times in a row to start the game because they know Houston. The Eagles would never do that. Well, that's that's what I'm saying. Like, like, what is Doug Peterson doing thinking Carson Wentz, something's wrong. And I don't know if it's physical or if it's in his head, but he's not the Carson Wentz of a few years ago. And why not get confidence? Look, offensive linemen, even when they're bad, if you give them a chance to just shove the defensive line a dozen, 10 times in a row, they love it and they get better at it. And, and the Eagles have a running back that can do it. So why didn't he just come out and say, all right, this isn't going well. We need to just run it down their throats. It's the Browns. You you know how I like stats, right? Yeah. We also talked about how bad the Jets are this season, correct? The Eagles yeah, bad is an understatement, but go ahead. Eagles offense has 43 three and outs this season mm-hmm. as opposed to 35 scoring drives. They are tied with the Jets for the worst margin of its kind at minus eight. Last week, their first eight drives Fumble, interception, punt, 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 punch down, punt. Goose. <laughs> Terrible. Now, okay, Wentz on pace to take 64 sacks. That would be the fourth most all-time in a season. Had his 14th interception of the season. In his rookie season, he had 14 interceptions in 16 games. Something's not right. And you know I'm a Wentz defender. I still are you, are you still? Are you, are you still sitting there okay. saying – this is the quarterback of the future. Well, uh, here's what here's the problem. I don't have a choice. Sure, it's a cap hit if they cut him of like forty million dollars next year. So you purposely lose million dollars over the cap. Yep. So okay. I mean, the only hope I have if he's not my quarterback is you get through next season and they have an out and cut him. Now I don't understand. He could be the backup quarterback. <laughs> you you can have Jalen Hurts start. Well, that's my question. So we had Dan Esposito on here few weeks ago from the NFL alumni saying Jalen Hurts should be the quarterback. We saw a lot of that. Oh, yeah, and I've gotten notes from him since saying, I was right, I was right, I was right. I've seen him blowing up your Facebook Uh, agent. So Mm -hmm. in his Wednesday press conference when asked, Peterson rambled when asked if Wentz would start Monday, then went back to clarify when he knew what he did. Right. Are we getting to the point where that's close to happening? Because whenever they put Jalen Hurts on the field, they still just give him the ball and let him run straight into the pile. Forget the fact that he actually was a successful college quarterback that played yeah. very high-level games. You would think the man could throw the ball occasionally. But again, I still have issues with the coaching. And so I was asked this week, do I want the Eagles to make the playoffs at that four or five win? <laughs> and you asked me that last year. Yeah. When, when they were had the chance to get in and play the Seahawks, and I said, yes, I want them to get in. I want Carson to get experience. And you know what they did after the season? Mm-hmm. They did this. You see how close we are? We were so close to winning a playoff game. If our quarterback didn't get hurt, we'd be They're close hurt. to going bankrupt is what they're close to. They are they not. They are so far over the cap for next year. It's insane. They are closer to the Jets right now than they are a Super Bowl winning team. They have holes everywhere. They're over the cap. Their quarterback is dysfunctional. Their offensive line hasn't been the same in any game. What the hell was Alshon Jeffrey doing on the field last week, taking snaps away from people who can't even jump anymore? I have more who, of a vertical leap. he was on the team. I have more of a vertical leap than all Sean Jeffrey had in that game. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, I, you can, I have seen you, you at can Blue Coast tryouts 
You do not. You, you look, can barely, Jeffrey can't jump very high, but you do not have more of a vertical leap. <laughs> you can barely stick paper under my feet when I exactly. jump. Alshon Jeffrey's feet were on the ground with that mistimed interception throw. It's Maybe he at, thought he was on the sideline. It's at every trying to keep his toes level down. of this team. It's coaching. Again, yes, your players are having problems, but you have a quarterback who clearly <laughs> has issues, okay? Whatever it is, reading the defense. Wait, well, why aren't every, you rolling everybody, him out? Everybody thinks he has issues except for one guy, Doug Peterson. Why aren't you rolling him out, Jeff? Eliminate um, half the field so he doesn't have to do a ton of reads. He throws better on the line. His offensive line can't hold up and block. Here's the I problem. You can't. You. You can't roll him out because he holds on to the ball too long, and then he only sees half of the field. He is not—he is not looking at third and fourth. If you look at his eyes, he's got one, maybe two receivers. He looks at one side of the field. It's a mess watching. For whatever reason, he's doing everything that you were taught not to do as a quarterback. Who's the bigger problem in the team, uh, Doug, Howie, or Carson? Howie, Howie, Howie. Because of the team together. He, he put this he put this disaster together and I don't know how you're gonna dig yourself out of this hole you just said they have Carson Wentz well you know what you're gonna have to have a 30 million dollar backup quarterback next year that's what you have to do did you see what Merrill Reese said at the end of the game as he was going off the air <laughs> so he's going off the air and obviously the Eagles play the Seahawks this Monday <laughs> night and Merrill Reese ended the broadcast with a Monday night football read and said next week versus the Seahawks don't let your kids watch that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it is fair it's like watching a horror film they, they need to have like an nc-17 rating on the football team it is definitely a problem we've we've hit that time if you're listening in your car or on the radio stay with us online or at our website www.thehardestsports.org or on our facebook page or on your wwdb am app you can just ask alexa to play wwdb wwdb now concludes its broadcast day they're licensed to operate on 860 kilohertz in philadelphia with studio locations in bala kinwood they're owned and operated by beasley media group licensee llc jeff back to the football so do they have yeah. a chance this weekend or am i just going to lose my mind watching dk metcalf run all over this secondary why why would you lose your mind they don't have a chance because they could have I, had I don't want to hear I don't want to hear any given Sunday because this given Sunday they are not going to beat this team. Well, it's a shame it's on a Monday. <laughs> uh, well, then, then you can then you can use the phrase any given Monday. Whatever yeah. day you want to use. I know the game's on Monday, but the phrase is any given Sunday. All right, let's stick with our football before we get to what I want to do at the end here. Uh, college football. They got a COVID problem, Jeff. What's what's left of college football? 20% of the top 25 games this week are canceled or postponed because of COVID. Uh, right. Ryan Day, Ohio so State far. has COVID. Nick Saban has COVID. And Dabo Sweeney's blaming everybody else about COVID. Uh, Jeff, your take on the way the NCAA, its coaches, uh, are handling COVID. Okay, well, let's, let's start with Dabo Sweeney because he's the easy target. Um, he's an idiot. Talking to the um, mic, Jeff. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I don't like him one bit. I, I, I just—it just seems I don't know if he intends it this way, but for some reason, look, you're a media relations guy. Somebody at Clemson should hire you to go down and talk to him because when the words come out of his mouth, he just appears to be a self-centered person who only cares about one thing, which is winning football games, and it doesn't—it just comes across as he doesn't care about anything else. Dabo Sweeney is, is the guy who put Trevor Lawrence on the sideline 
when he wasn't eligible to play because he had the virus, okay? If you can't play in the game, why put him on the field, okay? The That's whole, first. The whole reason the game was canceled right. is because they let a player fly on the plane who then tested no, bus. positive. The bus. They're on the bus. But then yeah. Dabo said, no, no, it's Florida State's fault. It's yeah. not ours. What he basically did was he acted like a kindergartner and called Florida State chicken. And nobody dislikes Florida State more than I do. But I'm telling you right now that if you have a player who's symptomatic, even if you're waiting for the results back, unless he was on a – they kept saying, well, they had, they brought nine buses. They didn't say that guy was on a bus all by himself, okay? So unless he's on a bus all by himself, why are you bringing him down there? If you – if it, first of all, he's symptomatic. He's sick. Even if he doesn't have COVID, the kid is sick. He doesn't need to be playing in a game. Leave him home. So you decide on, on Friday night, Saturday morning, that you're, when there's a game at noon, that you're going to bring him down, and then he does test positive, which means that he was around other people, which means at that point, if Florida State's um, medical staff meets with Clemson's medical staff and says, hey, look, we don't want this to turn into the outbreak that is Wisconsin, and we'll get to Wisconsin in a minute, but you don't want that to happen if you're Florida State. And if Dabo Sweeney doesn't like it, that's fine, but you don't come out and basically call Florida State a bunch of chickens that, that didn't want to play and were afraid to lose. Florida State stinks. They're going to lose to everybody. What's the difference if they lose to Clemson? Really? That's, that's what you need to do? And then to sit there and say, well, the only way we're playing them is if they pay for our, you know, our bus fares. It, 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 it just comes across, especially now, with people dying of this, it comes across so callous that he's going to sit there and whine about that Clemson doesn't get to play a game. Why? Because it's going to risk that some of the voters don't put them in the top four? Too damn bad. You have to at some point bite your, at least bite your tongue. And, and, and it did seem that their um, athletic director did seem to walk it back the next day. Good. It, not in apologizing him for, but just saying, well, you know, he wears his, his emotions on his sleeve. But you don't want a situation like Wisconsin. Wisconsin's had what? At least half their games canceled now? They're not playing again this weekend. Yeah. How many uh, games has Wisconsin played? Three? It's not good. How, like, it's, how, are, how are they going to be eligible to be in the Big Ten Championship? Let's say they win there if they play any other games. Let's say they go 5-0. and oh. That's a and, good and, 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 and let's say – so now you have other problems, which is you could have 5-0 and oh teams ranked higher than, like, BYU who could finish, like, 11-0. and oh. How do you do that? How are they, how are they going to, you know, this is all subjective. This is a bunch of guys and, and women that are sitting in a room that are the committee. And, and they're going to decide this when some teams have played 11 games, some have played nine, some have played five. And on top of that, it's just not the number of games. It's the games that you actually miss. I mean, what if, what if you're missing the hardest opponent on your, on your schedule? What do you do with this situation? I don't, and and by the way, every week I get the notification about the updated projections for bowl games. Are we really playing all these other bowl games with nobody there? What is the point of that? Are we really going to have the Weed Eater Bowl and the, and, the, and the Idaho Potato Bowl and the Motor City Bowl? I mean, with no people there? How do you do that with me supposed to keep a straight face? <laughs> <laughs> it. College football's making no sense to me. And 
You know, and I've heard people say, well, you know, wait till basketball, it's going to be worse. I don't think basketball is going to be worse. I think they're going to handle it. First of all, it's a lot less people. Okay, you're talking about, what, 15, 15 players or 20 players on a roster possibly that are traveling, and that's it. And, and you know, four or five coaches. You're not talking about 100 people and all that additional staff that, that, that's involved in it. It's a much smaller group of people. But you are going to have some of the same issues. What I don't know is I know a lot of people probably don't follow college hockey. College hockey, hockey is just moving along, and sure. I don't know how they're doing it. Jeff, uh, we got about five minutes left in the show. Uh, you asked me this week if I wanted to skip the show. Uh, it's been a, a week for me. My dad passed away this morning. Uh, and no, I, I, I didn't want to because um, this is fun for me and this is what my dad enjoyed listening to. He loved listening to us on the radio, banter back and forth, and my love of sports and how to understand it came from him. Uh, I joked with you about how we had an antenna on our house growing up at the top so that he could get his New York sports because he was from North Jersey until he became a Philly fan when he moved down here. Uh, my wife still hates the fact that I have the remote in my hands at all time because he never watched a commercial, yet never missed a play. <laughs> he just always managed to change around and knew how that was timed out, and we would sit there and watch those games, and I would never get it. Uh, you know, there was a time that, that he had a job overnight. He, he had delivered newspapers for a little bit, and I would go with him. We'd get up at 3 in the morning, and we'd listen to the sports talk out in New York and, and talk about, you know, what they were saying and, and how it went. And he used to laugh when I would lie about my age and call into the radio stations around here and try and get on the air to make my sports point. I think we've talked about, um, you know, the impact of family and, and sports and, and the things that you have. You've talked about the things that you and your son have, been able to do together and you know the 93 world series run uh in that nlds game i was there in the upper deck in 700 level with my dad and my brother and my stepdad and it literally baseball brought my family together at times when they all weren't always together uh then there's the flip side when my dad had fallen asleep during joe carter's home run in 93 <laughs> and I, I had woken him up so why would you wake before, him up wait i woke him up just before mitch williams threw the pitch i and i said dad oh, so you're the bad to, son i said dad we're coming back to philly we're gonna go to the game that's gonna be great joe carter hits the home run and i i kid you not my dad rolls over and looks at me and he goes welcome to being a philadelphia sports fan and back to bed. <laughs> and, and he was totally right uh we did father day games at the ballpark we you know he as as he got older he threw the ball with his grandkids and enjoyed being a poppy and um you know i i wouldn't be the sports fan i am and i wouldn't be doing this show without him so i i didn't want to just skip the week and i didn't want to not be on the air i wanted to talk about him and talk about it because my love of sports and the stories behind them and what sports can mean for people and bring people together is how my life has been lived sports is what the common thing was for my dad and i when we didn't have other things in common and uh so i just i appreciate you letting me take a couple minutes at the end of the show to talk about this because for both of us sports is a family thing and well, I and, and I've had the chance to talk to your dad, and I know how much it meant for him to hear you on the radio. He never called in to criticize you, though. No, no. <laughs> he, he would just do that off the air. Um, and, and, he, and he really didn't criticize. He would have a good laugh about things. Like, he right. didn't go 
what I was thinking when I didn't say something. He'd be like, mm -hmm. oh, you wanted to say this. And I'm like, yep, yep, I did. <laughs> no, I, I mean, he, he genuinely, the smile on his face and how proud he was of you in doing the show and, and just in life. But and, and now, you know, you kind of hope, well, you don't kind of, you do hope that that's, this pandemic gets over so that you can now pay it forward and have the moments that you just shared with, that you had with your dad to share those with your kid and yeah. to tell, tell, the, tell those stories to them and so that they have this and then they'll have their own stories of of when they woke you up and and, and ruined, it, ruined, ruined the night for you <laughs> but i mean it's it, that's what it is like i go out now and i i throw the ball with my kids and i do all those things and you know want to support whatever they want to do playing sports or playing whatever they did and and that love came from him in terms of you know, wanting to be around sports. I never had the physical ability to play sports. That wasn't something I was blessed with, as everybody knows. Uh, but I did have the ability to talk about it. And I would talk about it with anybody who would listen. And that came from talking about it with him all the time. So if he grew up as, as a New York fan, was he a Yankees fan? No, no, he, he, he never watched the Mets. But I mean, by the time I was Oh, born, so he already knew what suffering was like. Exactly. He yeah. understood it. And by the time I was born, he was already a, a poor sport Philadelphia fan. You know, he had season tickets to the games and we would go together. He would tell me which friend of his to call to get tickets so I could go with my friends and be that cool kid who brought my kid friends to the game on their ticket and you know that that kind of stuff all the time and so you know i have those memories and that that to me is is what it's been about and yeah this time is is difficult and, and interesting and and trying to figure it all out and feel my way through it um but i i've been talking to people all day about all the good things that came out of my life with my dad and the sports that revolved around it that we watched that we played that we went to that we sent other people to it, it just you know, it kind of hit me that, that this show is my tribute to him every week. Well, thank you for sharing that with me and for and with the audience. I'm going to let that be the last word. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Make sure to join us next Friday night to help you start your weekend in style. Have a great one, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.